Hey, Sam. Yeah, Don? What's the word? Feel better. Like I'll enjoy getting sober? Well, yes and no. It's true. When you get sober, you will feel better. But? You'll feel everything better. Where'd you hear that? I I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Hiya, Sam. Today, we've got an interview with Susan Ida and an Ask the Old Timer segment where we have a question from a newcomer. Don, when you came into AA, I bet you had a lot of questions. (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) Where did you get the answers? What is going on? The first meeting I went to, they were talking about making amends. And I listened to that whole meeting and went home afterwards. And my wife was like, well, how was it? How was your first AA meeting? And I said, I don't know what they were talking about making amends. I never heard anybody. I was always a happy drunk. <laughs> and uh, that she took issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I learned, you know what? I did affect other people. But I did. I had a lot of questions. It's overwhelming walking into AA and you see meetings going on in these churches here in North Carolina. Most of the meetings are in churches, church basements, meeting rooms, auditoriums, and things like that. And it's like, uh, well, is it affiliated with the church? Is this is AA a church thing? Mm-hmm. And it's not. And it's not. <laughs> And I had no idea. So what I did was I got a sponsor and asked him all the questions. Like in a meeting, you'd hear people share and they'll be sharing all kinds of stuff. And he'd go, don't listen to that person. That person's, <laughs> That's not AA. <laughs> and you go, I couldn't tell what was AA and what was just personal yeah. advice. Yeah. What you're saying right there is the key. And it's ask a question. Sure. If you don't have a sponsor yet, ask someone sitting beside you about that question. People in these rooms are so happy to help. Yeah. But you know, you're you're also talking about get a sponsor. That's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was totally terrified to get a sponsor in the beginning. And I heard about this concept of a temporary sponsor. Mm-hmm. First of all, all sponsorship is temporary. Someone's <laughs> gonna die. <laughs> the temporary sponsor concept that I was introduced to was that, you know, this is someone that you're not necessarily going to work the steps with, but the temporary sponsor is just someone that you can call someone that can give you some guidance on meetings and and what you're doing right now. You know, this is what an open meeting is. This is what a discussion meeting is closed meetings. All these types of questions that we can come in with can be answered by someone who is also in, in many areas referred to as a temporary sponsor. Yeah, and the whole idea of temporary sponsors, it takes the giant fear out of asking somebody. It's a <laughs> it, good <you> know, point. <laughs> just get somebody to help you along. But also just after the meeting, hang out, go up to somebody and start talking to them and ask some questions. Wait, you mean when you first come to AA, hang out after the... I, I was running out the door as soon as <laughs> we closed the meeting. You mean I should stay? Yeah, yeah. and if you do stay, it's amazing. 
just by being open and asking a question that gives other people permission to talk because people will leave you alone. Mm -hmm. So by asking questions, you're giving people permission to help. Yeah. Yeah. I love our meetings, but it's really hard to get to know anybody in the meeting. Mm -hmm. It's before and after the meeting that you get to know people. That's right. Speaking of that, let's meet Susan Ida and get to know her. Ooh, I'm looking forward to this. Hello. It's very nice to be here. My name is Susan Ida B. My sober date is August the 21st, 1976. And I am a member of the morning discussion group here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Oh, Susan Ida, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Thanks, Susan Ida. You got sober in 1976 mm-hmm. in Toronto? It was in Toronto, uh, but I was uh, sober five years before I came into AA. What does that mean? What occurred is that I had stopped drinking. Uh, my last uh, drink was not my last drunk, right? My last drink was literally it. I, I took the whiskey, I chugged it down, it went as far as my throat, and then I spat it out. That was my last drink. Oh, wow. Why did you do that? Because I didn't want it anymore. I had run out of people, places, and things. I just did not want that relationship to be more important than my sobriety. For the next five years, though, I made people, places, and things my higher power. So five years after that last drink, then you came to AA. Now, had you ever been to AA prior to that? You know, in the big book, it talks about irritable, restless, and discontent. Mm -hmm. People would describe me like, like I had the devil on my tail. You know, I just kept moving and moving. My last drunk, I saw ravens come out of the wall. I remember seeing this in dog that nobody else saw eat up my arm. I, Mm. I, um, I felt spiders underneath my skin. That was my last drunk. But my last drink was what I just described in terms of just taking this bottle and chugging it back and then throwing it out. In that five years, as I said, I had run out of people, places and things. I remember seeing the days of Wine and Roses where Jack yes. Lennon is down on the ground and he's got this bottle and he's just he's just throwing it back. And I'm, I'm feeling that burn and I'm thinking that, oh, my God, that is so good. Like I could just taste it going down, you know. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was sitting there and she goes, oh, my God, look what he's doing. And (laughs) I just thought, what is wrong with her? Like, and I got rid of that relationship because I I just figured, like, if she didn't appreciate that, then, you know, like, what's what's that? But you you weren't drinking. No, but I could feel it go down. That's the first time I actually remember seeing AA. Ah. Then... Again, irritable, restless, discontent, moving around, moving around, moving around. I was in this little place called Tassis, which I believe is on the west side of Vancouver Island. And I just missed out on the job in a mill. And I went to the bar because nothing had changed, right? I still went to bars. I just didn't drink. Oh, wow. That must have been miserable. White knuckling it? No, no. I just didn't drink. I had in my head, I'm not drinking. I just didn't drink. So... I missed out and a guy was hitting up on me on the bar and I said, I don't drink. And he was really upset that I didn't drink. And he says, why don't you go down there, down the road to the mill? And those people there, they don't drink either. Well, I had never heard about people who did not drink unless they were like religious people. And I looked in, I now know it was kind of like an open uh, topic meeting. And I said, are you the people that don't drink? 
And they said, yeah, we don't drink. And that was the first time I entered into an AA meeting. So what I did is I returned to Toronto. Now, my cravings, there's nothing in my story about social drinking. What there is, is that there would be these periods of time when the need to drink was not there. And then there were periods of time when it would just come in and just take me out. Sometimes what I would do is I would just lock myself in my room and I would just literally go nuts. I would just, I would just go crazy. I would be- Because you weren't drinking. Right. And I wanted to drink, but mm-hmm. I did not drink. And I knew by experience that the feeling would end. I just didn't know when it would mm. end. First step, right? Powerlessness. So I had been to this meeting in Tassus. And here I am in Toronto. And again, I was at a place called Misty Mugs in Toronto. And again, you know, the tea tasted like the alcohol. The food tastes like alcohol. My cravings came to me sensory. I could smell it. I could taste it. Even though I hadn't drank in all of those years, I could, when the cravings came, I could taste it. I could smell it. I could sense it. And for this time, I knew that if I went back home, I was going to drink. Mm. And I remembered what those people in Tassis told me about AA. So I phoned the AA phone number and I explained my situation. And they told me that there's a meeting near to where I was and to go there. And I did. These days, I can't remember whether her name is Kay or Faye. This is many years ago. But she was at the door of AA. And I told her, I said, I haven't had a drink in five years. But I said, I, 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 I need to be here. And she looked at me and she said, that's okay. She said something to the effect like, that's all right. There was a guy who came in and he had 10 years of sobriety. And he was just about as crazy as you are now. <laughs> I looked at her and I knew that she knew. Yeah. You know, like, you know your own. Yes. And right at the end of the meeting, I can still see it now, you know, where the table is and all the slogans are. And there it was. You were no longer alone. And it was just like that thing had like flash. That's and and I knew I knew like a beaten dog knows when it's home. I knew I was home. I knew I was home. And that was the start of a very slow but steady recovery for me. The steps, the traditions. I, I'm not one of these people that, you know, within a year I got a, no, 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 no. It's, it's been ongoing. I do the steps one to 12. They take me, they just keep taking me and they keep. Well, you me. spent so much time staying sober by self-will. And in the book, it talks about how self-will availed us nothing. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I can't keep myself sober. So I would imagine you would have a hard time coming into the program after five years of not drinking no matter what, mm-hmm. and then hearing all of these things of surrendering. How did that affect you? It was God sent because I had nothing left. There was no more people, places, things, or situations. I had used them up. I had gone through men like people go through chocolate, right? I had gone from this type of self-help to that type of self-help to that type of self-help. I don't believe I kept myself sober. I believe that God kept me sober. Looking back, I believe that my aunties in Trinidad, when they were doing their rosaries and including me in their rosaries, they kept me sober. I believe the nuns, part of the nuns that brought me up, you know, they kept me sober. Like all of these prayers that were around me, which I had no appreciation or understanding of at all when I came in. I believe that that's what did it. And the older I am and the 
like, you know, like I'm past 45 years now sober. So the older, and when I look back, I don't see any other possible explanation. I just don't see it. I know what you're saying. I've gone through periods of great despair in sobriety and looking back on it, discovered that all the, this grace that I was carried through this terrible time and was able to act well and be there for other people yes. in ways that I couldn't before. That's right. I felt terrible. I felt like I was doing terrible, but looking back, I was carried through that. Yes. Time. I, I, I believe that. The other thing that I think has had an impact is I was very fortunate because I was in a profession where for um, a little over 40 years, I was able to do frontline work. What does that mean? Frontline work? Frontline work. So I was a social worker for over 40 years. Ah. So there was always ongoing exposure to alcoholics, whether or not I was serving food underneath the bridges or wherever I was working, there was exposure. So this thing about remember when during that five years that I was uh, sober outside of AA, I think that that probably was also in in addition to the prayers uh, was very helpful because, right, I could actually see this is what happens when you drink Lysol. I saw that. So I think in that five years before I came in, there was that piece too. So when you came into uh, the rooms of AA and you started working the program of AA, something changed. Oh, yeah. What happened that the obsession to drink was lifted? I I don't have a story that says I came in and then, you know, it's eight years. And I can't tell you when in the eighth year, all of a sudden I realized that that craving, that wave that used to come in, it hadn't. Mm. It just dawned on me one day, it's not there, right? And I didn't trust it. So three years in the program, I was very, very fortunate that I had some really old timers around at that time. These old timers, they (laughs) they did not mix their words, right? What's something that an old timer said to you that was shocking? Oh, I'll tell you what they told me. (laughs) What they told me is they said, you go to the closed meetings. You stay away from those open meetings because they're like a meat market and somebody will just want to pick you up or bring you home or whatever. So you stay away from them and you do the steps and you have to share. I would start to share and then all of a sudden I would start crying. And when I say crying, I'm not just talking. Ah! I'm talking like wailing, like talking about wailing. And every time I would go to the meetings and I go, oh, my heavens, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. And I would go to the meetings and and I would start to share. And so one time I said to the old timers, I said, you know, I keep wailing. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. What You know, it's it's sort of like where else you got to go? What else you got to do? You know what I mean? So you know, <laughs> I love it. So so you got no judgment for wailing no. in those meetings when you shared. No. They kept on. They wanted you to stay. And it's not it's even more than that. One time it's like all of this gunk just kind of came out and, and I was in a rage and there was an old timer to my left and there was an old timer to my right. And all they did they put their head down, right? I can still see them. And here I am just raging, you know, just everything coming out of me. And then finally it was over. And then I can just see them. They just lifted up their head and they looked at me <laughs> to make sure that I was finished. 
And then they, they just picked up as though I hadn't raged. Like it was just such acceptance. And she had to go through that. Well, you know, maybe they were thinking in themselves, well, maybe she'll stop wailing now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. It's, it's like I initially said, I knew I was home. When I spoke, people were nodding. You know, yes. they're going, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you experience. And they would laugh when I laugh. And I could laugh when they laugh. Even though what they were saying was absolutely horrendous, mm-hmm. we were all laughing together. Patience and tolerance, as you were talking about those two old timers on either side of you while you yeah. were raging. And then after, okay, is she done? Uh, and then someone shared. And yeah. it's like completely patience and tolerance. It's time for Ask the Old Timer. Got a question for an old timer? Call in and record it at 212-870-3418 or email it to podcast at aagrapevine.org. You can find these and more at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. And now let's ask the old timer. Susan Ida, you've got a long-term sobriety here. So this mm-hmm. is an opportunity to bring a question that a newcomer would have and get some experience. This happened to me. A, uh, a new guy came in and he said that he had quit drinking for five days. His partner drinks. And he said he didn't think it was fair to ask his partner to take all the alcohol out of the house. There was beer in the refrigerator. And also, he said, I think it proves that I'm not going to drink. I needed to have it like right there to prove that I'm not going to drink. I want to hear your reaction to that. What would you tell someone new? I cannot stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. It is impossible. It is what I do in this day. So in terms of step one, I am powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. So what I would encourage this person to know is that in my experience, I am powerless over alcohol. If I am powerless over milk, and when I drink milk, I break out in hives, I am powerless over milk. Everybody else in the family may be powerless over milk. Well, what it really means for me as a person is I cannot drink milk. And that has to be first and foremost. Now, in that environment where there is alcohol around, that has to be front and center. So in these days, I would encourage that person to take in a lot of Zoom AA meetings because there are 24-7 throughout the world, you can get them. But also to know that just like I cannot open a person's brain and turn off that turn switch, neither can anybody open my brain and turn off my turn switch. So I am the only one that can make a decision about that. And what I decide to do is that God is responsible for keeping me sober. And I am responsible for keeping in contact with God. And I do that through the steps. And the steps tell me, and the literature tells me, that I am not made inside of myself to be able to drink. The big book says analogy. I have something inside of me. That when I take in that drink, I'm not only powerless, but it's going to take over more of my life as time goes on. 
When my parents conceived me, they did not say to themselves, I'm quite sure, I think what we all give birth to is a glue-sniffing, pill-popping alcoholic. That was not in their mind. <laughs> no. So I have to own something I did not ask for. And is that fair? No, that is not fair. But that's what I got. So I don't take that first drink. And I go to my meetings. And you do the 12. And if somebody in my family, somebody who I love dearly, decides to join me, that is really nice. But if they don't, then I just do it on my own. And if they do, they are not doing it for me and I am not doing it for them. I am doing it because I have a physical allergy that the only remedy for me is not to take that first drink. And I choose to do it through the AA program. And I choose to belong to that community because that community has done the worlds for me. That's what I would tell them. Susan, Ida, thank you. You really struck me when you said, I have to own something I didn't ask for. Yeah. Because this is acceptance. You know, I am an alcoholic. My body does not process alcohol like other people's bodies do. As soon as I accept that, then I can move on and address it in how I'm living. That's right. Would you recommend telling the partner, could you remove the alcohol or mm -hmm. could you hide the alcohol instead mm -hmm. of having it right in my face every time I open the refrigerator? So it is okay to share with another person certain boundaries, right? It's okay. But if I'm going to hinge my sobriety on that, that's not okay. Mm. That's the difference. So if I get to a point in my life where all of a sudden this lifestyle of always having alcohol around or whatever is really bothering me, then I better do like a fourth, fifth, and up I go hmm, through the steps. Because it's a spiritual axiom that if something is really bothering me, I have to look at it. That's We're told that in step 10. So in terms of my relationship with my husband now, he married me when we were sober. And by the time we had gotten together, there was no alcohol allowed. I, I didn't have any alcohol in my home, mm. right? And I would tell people. And it's a great dividing point because you always know somebody's got a problem with alcohol because they're going to, they'll meet you in the restaurant. They'll meet you, <laughs> but they're not going to meet you in your home. So Good it was, point. You know, as I said, I used to keep alcohol in my, my, my fridge, right? And one day I was in the program and then all of a sudden I thought, I don't want that in my fridge anymore. Yeah. I just, I didn't want it. I had grown to that point where I just didn't want it in my fridge anymore. So I got rid of it. And all of a sudden I noticed people were leaving, like they weren't coming over. Like what was going on? Like nine tenths of the people that I had in my life were, were drinkers. And because I didn't have the alcohol in my fridge anymore, they weren't coming over and they left different ways. But the bottom line, some left nicely. Some didn't, leave, it didn't leave so nicely, but the bottom line is, they were gone. Just like if it was me and my drinking mm -hmm. with that person in the days of wine and roses, not being able, like, what is wrong with you? You know, you can't relate to Jack Lennon, you know, putting down that. Like, I was just feeling <laughs> burned, like, oh my God, this is so. <laughs> and meanwhile, she's going, like, oh, you know, and I'm going, something wrong with you, girl. You know, like, <laughs> it's the alcoholic mind, isn't it? Untreated. It is. So I would advise that person just keep with the program, keep with the steps. God will let them know. But it, I think it's only manners, right? Like if, if I'm living with somebody and, and uh, they're doing something that bothers me, I, I would like to let them know. 
okay to ask. It's okay to ask, but for me to hinge, to say to that person, you know, like, if you don't do that, it's going to mess around with my drinking. Well, all of a sudden now I've made that person a higher power, but I'm not hinging my sobriety on it, on what they do or don't do. Susan Ida, Don did not know this when he posed this question, but this describes my early sobriety. Oh. My husband did not get sober until eight months after I did. He drank alcoholically like I did. Mm -hmm. uh, we made an agreement that he would hide the alcohol. I wouldn't see it in the freezer or the fridge or whatever. You know, there were a couple of times that I found it. He had not held to our agreement and that didn't go well. I, mean, I, I didn't drink and I was doing Alcoholics Anonymous at the time. And I was doing mm -hmm. the things to take care of my sobriety yeah. and get through yeah. this. But at that eight month point, I was ready to leave. And that is also when he said he was ready to get sober mm -hmm. and I didn't believe him. Mm -hmm. And I left him in a huff and I drove a block or two away and parked in a parking lot. And I called a friend in recovery and he said, he's asking for help. Let's take him to a meeting. And so we did. And he got sober. Mm -hmm. Okay. For eight months, I was living sober, living in a home where someone was drinking alcoholically. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that for a period of time, but I realized that this is not something that I want to stay with. And the situation changed, thankfully. We're still together, nice. but it was very much what's been described here. Mm -hmm. Susan Ida, thanks so much for being here and sharing with us today. Indeed. Thank you. This has been a real joy. Well, thank you for the invite. months before I joined AA, I went on a terrific blackout drunk the night before I was to catch an early morning cross-country flight. My gait was still unsteady as I boarded. Yes, I was weaving on a jet plane. <laughs> 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 it's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.